your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Bible in front of you is available in the pew. Uh, as always, if there are things in the text or things in the message today that you have questions about, we will be doing Q&R at the end of our time today, and you are welcome to text your questions to the text number on the screen. So we're ending this morning the, uh, the flood story. We've been looking at different aspects of this for a number of weeks. And uh, the, there's an interesting feature of literature. You'll see it in books. You'll see it in film called bookending. And the way this works is, is the very first part of the story is mirrored at the very end of the story. Maybe you watch a movie where the first scene and the last scene look very similar. And, and it's a very um, uh, intentional storytelling device to connect the story together. We actually see it in a grand scale in our Bibles. The very first part of the story is the, the Garden of Eden, this, this garden of God where humanity lives in peace with God. And at the very end of the book, in the book of Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem described as a garden city where God and his people dwell together again. It's the same scene repeated in the front and the back. And unfortunately, as we wrap up the flood narrative, we get the same literary technique. We began learning about the cause of the flood with a story about the sons of God and the daughters of men and how they violated a very inappropriate boundary with one another. And we're going to see the same thing play out in a different way today. So as we read this story, Noah and his family have left the ark. They're, they're the only people that they know. The, the animals have left the ark. They begin to repopulate. Noah begins to work the soil like his ancestor before him, Adam. And he plants a vineyard, and he makes wine, and he gets drunk, and then this thing happens. So what I want to do today is, first of all, talk a little bit about what's going on in this story, because once again, it's a little weird. And then talk about a couple things that we can do to maybe glean some application out of it. As we read about this story of Noah and his son Ham, we have two questions that we need answered. The first one is, what did Ham do here? What's, what is Ham's sin? And then secondly, why does Noah curse Canaan, Ham's son, for Ham's sin? So I want to give you some, some options. These are, these are different views that have been thrown out throughout church history. One is uh, just voyeurism, that, that Noah had um, caused himself to get drunk, had unclothed himself. He was, he was in his tent, like the text says. Ham comes in and sees his father naked, and he basically goes outside and makes fun of him to his brothers. The upside to this view is it's a very straightforward reading of the text. The downside is it's hard to understand how it's such a big deal. We don't have any laws in the Old Testament that like seeing your dad naked is a big sin that is, is, a, is deserving of a curse. And so it's, it's a little odd that, that that's all that happened. 
A second option, um, which, is, which came up in later Jewish tradition, is, is that Ham went into the tent and castrated his father. I told you it was a little weird today. And the, the, the logic behind this is Canaan is Ham's fourth son. And so Noah curses Ham's fourth son because Ham prevents Noah from having a fourth son. And that's an interesting idea, but there's really nothing in the text that supports it. It's just kind of a guess. A third option is that there's some kind of sexual assault going on between Ham and his father. Noah, the text says that Noah saw what his son had done to him. It seems like Ham had done something wrong. And in verse 24, we read that, um, let's see, when Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed is Canaan. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. So if we set aside Canaan for a second, something really bad seems to have happened here. But there's still a question. Why is Canaan cursed if Ham sexually assaulted his father? So there's a fourth option, and this is the option that I think is the most compelling. Um, And some of this comes from the work of Mike Heiser, referencing some other scholars that I'll talk about in a few minutes. But the the first thing we have to understand is the meaning of an idiom. An idiom is something that we're all very familiar about with, even if we don't know the definition. The definition is a group of words established by usage as having a meaning not deducible from those of the individual words. So here's an example. It's raining cats and dogs. What does that mean? It's raining a lot. Yeah. Uh, That was a piece of cake. What does that mean? It's easy. I killed two birds with one stone. What does that mean? Two things at one time, yeah. Uh, You let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, you told a secret, right? Yeah. So there's no amount of English language word study that any of us can do to figure out what those idioms mean. If I was a foreign speaker and you said that was a piece of cake and I went to my dictionary and looked up the word cake and tried to figure out all the ways cake was made and how it worked, and it would not get me any closer to the meaning of the idiom that what you just did was easy. And the Hebrew Bible has these idioms as well, all over it, and it's the work of Hebrew and Greek scholars to figure out what these idioms are. And so I normally really love the Christian Standard Bible. This is the Bible we teach from. It's the Bible in the pews. But I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible this morning because it takes the text a little more literally. Starting in chapter 9, verse 20, we read, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Now it's possible to read this as a pretty straightforward narrative, but if we go to 
a couple books over, Moses is uh, still writing here in Leviticus 20. We read this, if there is a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. Leviticus 20 is talking about inappropriate sexual relationships, and it uses two idioms, uncovering nakedness and seeing nakedness, and it uses them synonymously. In Leviticus 20, we see that uncovering your sister's nakedness and seeing your sister's nakedness mean the same thing. It means having an inappropriate sexual relationship with your sister. Then we move to Genesis 18. Sorry, not, that's, not, that's not right. Do you have Genesis 18? It should be Leviticus 18. So trust me. It says, you, do not un- you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the, un- the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's wife. So again, Leviticus 18, talking about inappropriate sexual relationships. The uncovering of your father's nakedness means having an inappropriate relationship with your mother or your stepmother. The nakedness of your father is the nakedness of your mother. This same idiom is also used throughout Ezekiel in chapters 16 and 22 and 23 to denote promiscuity and sexual violence. And it is never used in the Old Testament to talk about same-sex sexual activity. So, What I think the best understanding of this passage is, is that Ham commits a very grave sin against his mother. John Bergsma and Scott Hahn, in their paper on this passage, write, if Sam's deed is understood as maternal incest, it becomes possible to explain Cain's origin as the fruit of that union. This insight suddenly illuminates two aspects of the text left unanswered by other theories, why Canaan is cursed and why Ham is repeatedly identified as the father of Canaan. What they're saying is the only way to make sense of Canaan's curse is that Canaan was the son born to Ham by his mother. Moses, I think, further hints at this explanation in the introduction to Leviticus 18. That was the passage I just read about all of the different sexual relationships that you're not supposed to have. He says, do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs. And then he goes on to list these sins. This particular type of sin is something that the Israelites learned from Egypt and Canaan, who are nations that both derive as descendants from Ham. So if if this is the best explanation of the text, using this cultural idiom for an inappropriate sexual relationship, why did Ham do this? What's going on here? Frederick Bassett writes, a son who has sexual relationships with his mother or stepmother commits a rebellious sin against his father, since the possession of a man's wife is seen also as an effort to supplant the man himself. 
Bergsma and Hahn again say, there is abundant attestation in the scriptures of sleeping with one's father's wives as a means of usurpation. Reuben tries to do it to his father Jacob in Genesis 35. David takes Saul's concubines in 2 Samuel 12. Absalom, David's son, takes David's wives in 2 Samuel 15. And Adonijah attempts to take David's wife Abishag in 2 Kings 2. And every single time, those are not relationships of romance or lust. They're relationships of power. If the son can take the father's wife, he can supplant the father as the head of the household. So on this reading, Ham is making this massive power play in order to take up headship over the family. And then in verse 25, Noah curses Canaan because he is the son that is born out of this sexual sin. So there's an objection to this view. And that would be that in uh, verses 24 and 25, it seems like Noah gets out of the tent and immediately curses Canaan. So if Canaan is born from this sexual sin, they wouldn't know about it until several months that, that Noah's wife was pregnant. And then even then, they wouldn't know it until Canaan was born. But oftentimes in Genesis, the narrator does what is called compressing the narrative. If you look at Genesis 5, verse 32, we read, Noah was 500 years old and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That verse isn't trying to tell us that shortly after Noah's 500th birthday, his wife had triplets. It's just trying to say that in the course of time, after Noah was 500 years old, he had three sons born to him. So it's possible that this same thing is happening in our text today, and Noah's curse comes at a later date after Canaan is born. So, what are we supposed to do with that? (laughs) Just end the sermon right there. Everyone's super blessed. (laughs) Okay, I want to talk about two things. So the first thing I want to talk about is alcohol. This is the first place in the scriptures that we read about wine. The use of alcohol uh, happens for the very first time when Noah plants a vineyard and then he abuses the wine and gets drunk. Wine and beer are talked about often in the scriptures as blessings from God. Listen to Deuteronomy 11. If you carefully obey my commands, I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and worship him with all your heart and all your soul. I will provide, will provide rain for your land in the proper time, the autumn and the spring rains, and you will harvest your grain, new wine, and fresh oil. If you obey me, if you live in rhythm with me, you will be blessed. And one of those blessings is wine. The reverse of that is is in Deuteronomy 28, wine is, the absence of wine is part of a curse. You will plant and cultivate vineyards, but not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. Every year we read in the law that the Israelites were to set aside 10% of their produce and take it to Jerusalem to eat it in the presence of the Lord as a celebration. But we read again in Deuteronomy, if the distance is too great for you to carry it, Since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, 
And since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it, your, your, your goods, for silver. And then take the silver in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the silver on anything you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything else. You're to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. God tells the people of Israel if they have a long journey to take their goods, convert it to silver, go to Jerusalem and buy food and beer and wine with which to celebrate the Lord together. But the Bible has a lot to warn us about concerning the abuse of alcohol. As we think about our study of the book of Genesis and all the pictures that we've come to see there, listen to Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine, don't gaze at wine because it is red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? I'll look for another drink. The writer of Proverbs is mocking the one that foolishly abuses alcohol. And listen to the words he uses. He says, alcohol is like a snake. Where have we seen a snake before? Alcohol is like being thrown out into the middle of the sea. What do we know about the sea and the chaos that it brings? When we get to the New Testament, Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, pay careful attention then. So how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. So the Bible makes it clear that alcohol seems to be a gift from God, but it is also dangerous if we wield it poorly. For some of us, that means that we need to abstain from alcohol completely. For the rest of us, it means that we need to take it seriously. Because if we don't take it seriously, the consequences could be very severe. Noah was not available to protect his wife from rape because he was drunk. That's quite a burden to carry. If you are someone that feels freedom to drink, and, and I put myself in that category, be careful. Be wise. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be grateful for the gift, but listen carefully to the warnings of Scripture. The second thing I think we can take away from this this morning is, is an even more difficult subject than alcohol. I think it brings up the subject of sexual assault. 
And this is something that is, is difficult to wrestle with, especially as modern people. There's a, there's a real human aspect to the Bible. The, the Bible is a, is a divine document. It's, it's God-breathed. It's inspired. The Lord has spoken these words to us, to all people in all time. But it's also a human document, and we know that because there are human authors, and there, are, there is a narrator, and there are stories, and things get edited and, and compiled. There's a long history of, of the production of the scriptures by godly, spirit-inspired human people. And that's the tension that we live in when we read the Bible. It's not a, it's not a golden message that falls down from heaven. It is a very human book that is the Word of God. But it shows that it is a product of the time that it was written in. And there's no way to get around that. If God wants to communicate to people, the only way it makes sense to communicate to people is in the context of the people he's trying to communicate with. We can, we can read stories like this and think, oh, that's such a, a primitive thing, or the, the, the culture's so different, or we're so much more enlightened today. And some of that might be true, But for God to get his message to the ancient Israelites, it would make no sense to them to communicate in a way that they did not understand. And so when we read this, we recognize that this world is a world of radical patriarchy compared to our modern world. If if this interpretation of the story is correct, one thing that stands out to me is Noah's wife is not even mentioned. The sin, the the idiom to to see your father's nakedness concentrates the the, the sin on Noah himself, right? We, We don't even know what Noah's wife's name is. And the idea that this sin is against Noah has an element of truth in it because Ham is actively trying to overthrow the family. But for a minute here, think about the story of a woman who is violated by her own son while her husband is passed out drunk nearby. A baby is born to her and all of the maternal instincts that go along with that are combined with the revulsion that this child was the product of a horrific rape. Her husband curses the child. And the family is broken, likely for the rest of their lives. And additionally, there's the story of of Ham's wife that's not mentioned and all of the chaos and family trauma that is brought to her and her other children because of this sin. This is clearly a terrible evil. Almost 18% of American women have been raped, as well as about 3% of American men. The statistics for other types of sexual assault are higher than that. It's likely that someone, at least one person in this room, is a victim of sexual abuse of some kind. And maybe you're here today and no one knows that part of your story. Maybe you experience guilt and shame when you think about it. Maybe there was too much alcohol involved and you wonder if it was your fault. And I know that this message is becoming more common in the world today with the Me Too movement, but I think it's important to say it here amongst the people of God in the church. Other people's sin against you is not your fault. The prophet Ezekiel 
I said earlier, he uses the idea of uncovering your father's nakedness a lot in several chapters of his prophecy. And he speaks the word of God and specifically rebukes men who have sinned against the women in their lives like this. So I have poured out my indignation on them and consumed them with the fire of my fury. I have brought their conduct down on their own heads. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I think it needs to be said that God is angry that you have been sinned against. God is angry that Noah's wife was sinned against. And he promises to do something about it. So the question is, what what is God going to do about this kind of horrific evil? In Ezekiel, God brings judgment. He says, I've had enough of it and you will be destroyed. And that's the appropriate payment for sin. It's it's death. We, We know that from the New Testament. And that's a reality for those that continue a life of sin and wickedness. But there are a couple other people in our story this morning. Look at Genesis 9:23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. We find out later that Shem is the man who will continue the line of blessing toward the one who is ultimately coming to crush the head of the snake. Remember, every story in Genesis is pointing forward to that moment when someone will come and fix the problem, and Shem is the son that is chosen to continue that line. And Shem and his brother, instead of trying to take honor for themselves, instead of trying to usurp their father's authority, they honor their father and mother, and they go out of their way and take the initiative to cover their shame. Listen to how Paul talks about our brother, Jesus. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus does not try to grasp for power. Jesus does not try to exploit his position. Instead, he lays down his authority and serves. Paul continues in Philippians, he says, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul says that everything in his life that matters, all his ambitions, all of his successes and failures, all of the baggage that he carries around is dung compared to Christ, is excrement compared to Christ. 
And he says, I don't have goodness of my own, but I am covered by Christ's goodness. Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Allegiance to Jesus and trust in his life and his power to transform you is the only way to be set free from shame. Maybe you are here today and you feel the burden of shame and guilt because of things that you have committed, sin that you have done against God and against other people. But maybe you feel guilt and shame, not because you did something wrong, but because someone did something to you. And it makes you feel dirty. It makes you feel confused. It makes you feel abandoned. The path out of both of those circumstances is giving your heart, giving your life, giving your trust to Jesus. Allowing him to be on the throne, taking yourself off of it and trusting in him to reshape you into a new kind of human. This is a difficult passage. It brings up a lot of hard things, but they're things that I think we need to bring out in the open. John says in his first letter that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will be cleansed from our unrighteousness. And that is the key to living a life of freedom and hope and peace in the Lord. I would encourage you, if, if there's something going on in your heart, if there's Maybe you've, you've got an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and nobody knows about it. Maybe sexual assault of some kind is in your past or in your present. Us keeping those things a secret will only serve to harm us. And that doesn't mean you tell everybody you know. I mean, there are ways to be wise in, in who you confide in. But, but if you have secrets, secret sin or secret shame that you can't tell anyone that no one could possibly find out about, I just plead with you to trust in Christ and just a little bit bring that out into the light. Find someone that you can trust and say, hey, here's, here's my story. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what's been done to me, and I don't know what to do about it. And if you're in the midst of an unsafe situation right now, if you're being abused by any way, you need to get out of it. You need to tell somebody. You don't have to stay in that place. You don't have to suffer simply because you think it's your role or your job. We're going to do a few questions. 
before we wrap up. Can you address the misuse of this text as it has been used to justify slavery and inequality? Yeah, um, that's awful. Um, the, there is a history of using this text as some kind of um, justification of subjugating brown-skinned people because somehow Canaan has been cursed with brown skin and his descendants have brown skin and therefore they should be lesser. There's a lot of reasons why that's really awful. Um, maybe the easiest one is that Canaan's descendants are largely white-skinned. Like the, the, the Canaanites kind of go north. Um, and so if that's your whole premise of like, Sub-Saharan Africa is Canaan's descendants. That's just not true. Um, secondarily, there's nothing in the text of Scripture that says anything about people groups or skin color or anything like that. Uh, it's frankly just a really terrible use of Scripture. And if, if it still gets brought up, which I'm sure it does somewhere, it needs to be condemned because it's just exegetically terrible, and it goes against the fact that racism is incredibly sinful and wicked, and it needs to be stamped out. Verse 24 says, the youngest son, I always thought Ham was the second son, and Japheth was the youngest. It seems weird that Ham would be listed second if he is the youngest. Yeah, this is, that is kind of weird. Um, it's possible that the way they list their names just has more to do with the syllables and the flow. Um, that Shem, Ham, and Japheth is more musical sounding in the Hebrew than Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Other than that, we don't really know anything about the word order. Last one, since the human race is still pure at this point in the story, what's the chance that the curse given to Cain and is a genetic disorder that he is indeed the son of Ham and Ham's mother. Would genetic disorders have happened so early in the beginning given the people were marrying with relatives anyway? I don't think so. Um, I, I think, so a couple things to know about the curse. One, God isn't necessarily rubber stamping this curse, right? We, we just assume that everything we read in the Bible is like God's approving of it, and that's often not the case. Noah is cursing Canaan, um, probably for, for reasons that are valid, but there's nothing in the curse that necessitates that this is something from the Lord. Um, and so when we see later on that Canaan, the Canaanites are these wicked people and the Israelites have to cast them out, that plays into it, but it isn't necessarily all that's going on there. It's more likely that it is, however, a moral connection to the future Canaanites and their wickedness and not a genetic disorder. And again, if it was, it would be, it would be speculation at that point. Moses isn't in a place where he is commenting on genetic disorders. Last question. 
Does this set up the pattern for the patterns of cultural war? It seems that it always goes back to a family fight somehow. Yeah, it does. Because Genesis paints the picture that we are all one human family, right? It's another reason why racism is foolish. And sin comes into the world and it breaks that up. Adam and Eve, the first human family, they experience shame. They know that they're naked and they can't be with each other anymore. Cain and Abel, the first brothers, results in murder because of infighting. And we're going to continue through the families in Genesis and over and over and over again, we're going to see family feuds and those grow into national feuds. And it gets worse and worse and worse. Next week, we're going to talk about the table of nations and all of the the many nations that spawn out of Noah's lineage and how they're constantly at war with each other, both because they're selfish human beings and because of the spiritual elements surrounding the text. The, The beauty of the gospel is that when we get to Jesus, we find that he's bringing all of those cultural fights together. He's taking the Jews and the Gentiles and putting them in the same room with each other and saying, no, now you're one new family. At Pentecost, we see the apostles speaking in the tongues of all of these nations because all of these people need to hear the gospel, the good news of Christ. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that the story of humanity is a bunch of familial infighting, right? That's who we are. (laughs) But in Christ, we can overcome. We're going to take communion. And the communion table is, is this place where we remember Christ's death, not just to cover over our sin, but to completely remove our sin and our shame. Communion, it's not not magic. It's just bread and, and wine. But thinking about the sacrifice of Christ, taking the elements in my hand, remembering his body broken and his blood shed, taking them into my body, experiencing that tactile experience. Week after week, month after month, it begins to do a work of reshaping your heart. If you're here and you've committed a great sin this morning or, or you're burdened with the shame of a great sin committed against you, hearing some Bible verses in a church gathering can seem kind of trite. I get that. But just like the continual reminder of communion, when you put these promises of God that you are new in Christ, that Jesus covers your shame, that, that we rejoice in the salvation and the adoption that we have in Christ. We are made new by the power of his blood. As you put those promises before you day after day, week after week, the power of God's word and his Holy Spirit will start to reshape your heart. And you will need people to help you. This is why it is untenable to be a Christian outside of community. There's no such thing in the New Testament. We need one another. We need brothers and sisters who can point out the lies that we are believing about ourselves and others and hold us up when our faith is failing. And it's a process. It takes time. Sometimes it takes a long time. But it's the process that God has created for our healing and wholeness. 
And it starts with trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.